Hi, this is Alan Chartok. I'm delighted to be in conversation today with James Brooke. Mr. Brooke is an American journalist of superior quality. You will not find anybody who has quite done in their lives what he has accomplished. And we'll be talking about a lot of that today. From 2010 to 14, he was the Russia former Soviet Union bureau chief for the Voice of America based in Moscow for VOA. He wrote Russia Watch, a weekly blog. Before that, he worked as Moscow bureau chief for Bloomberg. Before Bloomberg, he reported for 24 years for the New York Times. I know them. Largely overseas in countries such as Japan, South Korea, Ivory Coast, and Brazil. Brooke graduated from Yale University with a BA in Latin American Studies. He was a stringer for United Press International as a student. After graduation, Brooke was a freelance reporter and part-time staffer at the Berkshire Eagle in Massachusetts. Massachusetts from June 1977 to April 1978. We'll talk about all of that with our guest today, but first, welcome James Brooke. Thank you, Alan. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, we are delighted to have you because you are the man of the hour. So let's start with Ukraine. How did you come to get situated so that you knew so much about that country? Thank you, Alan. I have about 15 years' experience with Ukraine. Uh, when I moved to Moscow, in 2006, I made trips down there, and then I moved there in um, 2015. Uh, so I have eight years in Moscow working as a reporter and six years in Ukraine working as a reporter. So I know both sides of the coin. Are you a language person? Do you know languages? I studied Russian in college, but uh, the Soviet Union was in a deep, deep freeze with the Brezhnev years. So I, I put it on hold for 20, 30 years. But I did study Russian for three years in college. Well, what was living in Moscow like? It was a lot of fun. Was it? <laughs> it was, yeah. I had a great time. And uh, I had this penthouse apartment paid for by VOA, thanks to American taxpayers. And um, the story was okay because Medvedev was the president and he was a so-called liberal. Putin was um, sort of in the behind the scenes. You know, he was having this affair with a gymnast and he really wasn't focused on running the country. Right. And then towards the end of my time, he came back with a vengeance and started cracking down. But I had five good years without Putin in charge. Was it the old Moscow when the communists were running it, or was it a liberated place? Oh, yeah, totally wide open and uh, cleaned up, physically cleaned up. You know, water sandblasted the buildings, uh, took off some of the communist names. Everything was, uh, you know, open. When I first went to Moscow in 1991, you needed permission to fly out of the country. You needed permission to do this, that, or the other thing. In 1991, maybe there were 15 hard currency restaurants. Um, by the time I got there to live there in 2006, there were like 1,500 uh, restaurants. So there are plenty of restaurants, nightclubs, things to do. Uh, the, the museums are great in Moscow. It's a great city. It's a world-class city. Was Medvedev running the place, or was there a more sinister presence behind him? Well, if you go to the Kremlin Museum, there's a, a throne which they temporarily put up for a temporary czar, and has a hole in the back so the, the man behind can shove a knife <laughs> into the back of the acting czar. And that's kind of Medvedev's position. He was, his day job was to run the country, but really Med, uh, Putin was in charge in the, behind the scenes. But he was an amenable face. I remember he met, uh, I think it was Biden, like five times, and it was all very jolly. But, um, but he was a figurehead, essentially, and, and Putin was the power behind the throne. So tell us a little bit about the Voice of America. How political was it? Did you have to hew the line, or how free were you to do what you wanted? I, I was free to do what I wanted to, and frankly, uh, the U.S. government had forgotten about VOA. It was one of the most demoralized uh, small agencies, and and the Russians had also forgotten about VOA. Uh, and uh, I do remember one time a, a plumber came to my apartment, and he was fixing something, and he goes, oh, Golos Ameriki, Voice of America. My father sat in jail for four years for listening to VOA. Man. So there was a period when VOA— I'm talking about the 70s, the 80s, even the 90s. It was very important. And then it became relevant by the time I took the job over. I had a lot of fun. I, I moved from radio to video. I traveled all over the place. Uh, and now, because Putin's cracking down, VOA all of a sudden is uh, very important, and people are following it through the Internet largely. He took them off all the radio repeaters in Russia. 
but Radio Free Europe and Radio and Voice America are very important for Russians to get a different point of view. Now, they also listen to German radio and BBC, but it's very important to get the non-Kremlin um, point of view. And the Kremlin controls all the TV and all the radio and all the newspapers in, in, in Russia. It's, it's a so total... let me ask you the crucial question. What's it really like uh, with Putin? Who is the guy? Well, he's turning 70 in October, and I think he's worried about his legacy. He does not want to be remembered as the czar that lost Ukraine. And so he's had this bug in his ear about Ukraine for 15 or 20 years. Really? And he went down to Kiev in 2004, told them how to vote. They didn't vote his way. And they, in fact, they rose up in the first Orange Revolution. 2013, he offered a $3 billion loan to his pal who was then president. And uh, the people rose up and said, no, we want to go with the EU, not with Moscow. So he's, you know, two strikes, and now we're seeing a military strike. He's, he's given up on the political route, and he thinks he can restore Ukraine to Moscow's control uh, through military means. I frankly think he will lose in the long run. There may be some temporary territorial real estate gains, but he, he's lost the hearts and minds of the Ukrainian people. Well, we all know that Putin was a KGB colonel. How much does that count for? It counts enormously because he, uh, in the 1980s, he was living for eight years in Dresden, East Germany, and hanging out with the Stasi, who were the most uh, sinister secret police Indeed. of the Eastern Bloc. And uh, he believes the world that way. The West is always out to get him. And um, so, unfortunately, what we're witnessing is kind of the the last gasp of the Soviet man, you know, the scorpion lashing back. And uh, if you look at Ukrainians, anyone under 40 has no memory of being under Moscow's rule. Uh, they voted overwhelmingly uh, for independence in 1990. Um, so that's 31 years, 31 years ago, 32 years ago. So they moved on. Uh, he hasn't. And his entourage, he's surrounded by similarly aging men who are nostalgic for the Soviet era. And they see this as their mission to pull it back together again. Now, we all know that the Soviet Union was a allegedly, quote, communist nation. To what degree do you think Putin was ever a committed communist, as in, let's share everything? He was a committed authoritarian. In other words, he, mm -hmm. he wanted to rule like a czar. And to some degree, the communists ruled like czars. I mean, that, that authoritarian sure. tradition continued despite the 1917 revolution. You know, when you go to Moscow, uh, there are shopping centers all over the place, Ikea, McDonald's. Uh, it it's, seems very Western and free market, but the money is coming from the sale of oil and gas. That's what Russia makes its money, and the resources like uh, uh, titanium and iron. Uh, they don't make things really that people want. Uh, so the money comes in and then they, they redistribute it through various ways. A lot of people still work for the state or big state companies. There isn't really the small enterprise. I mean, oddly, in China, there's a lot more small business than in Russia. We're talking to Jim Brook, foreign affairs columnist, a guy who now lives amongst us. And we are very lucky to have him in Lenox, Massachusetts. So, Jim, what are you doing now? Well, uh, I'm really working nonstop talking about Ukraine, trying to bring Americans up to speed and what the situation is there. There's no reason why they should know what's happening. And, and I try to guide people, tell them about my six years in Ukraine. And Where my, do you do it and how do you do it? Well, by talking to microphones like these. I've been doing probably a dozen radio and TV interviews in the last four days. And um, there's huge interest to know about this country. 40 million people who want to live like Europeans. They want to live like in the, they want free press. They want free elections, which they've had. And uh, they don't want to answer to Moscow. Do you think Putin and Moscow are going to have to pay for what they're doing now? I think the Russian people, unfortunately, are losers in this. Because when Putin leaves from the scene in five or 10 years, the Ukrainians will nurse this grudge of being bombed and attacked by Russia. And yes, it is the Russian army, but it's Putin telling him to do this. And so that will create bad blood from two peoples that were very close and very friendly, just like Americans and Canadians. So the Ukrainian people, you're basically saying, have turned on the idea that they were once 
under communist control and are now used to living as a free people. And Putin said, I better do something, right? Yeah. And that something was? You know, and the something was he attacked them on five fronts with, you know, airplanes and tanks. Um, you know, people move on. I mean, you want to talk, St. Patrick's Day is coming up. Should we talk about maybe it's time for London to retake Ireland? That, you know, Ireland is destabilizing and promoting nationalism in the Gaelic Scotland. I mean, you know, people move on. The Irish have moved beyond English rule 100 years ago. The Ukrainians moved beyond Russian rule 30 years ago. Uh, they have their own language. They overwhelmingly travel to the EU. They have visa-free access to the EU. They go there to work. They go there to study, and they go to, to travel. Uh, when I was there, when I moved to Moscow, I thought that my friend – start again. When I moved to Kiev, I thought that my friends from Moscow would come down and visit. No one ever did in six years. There were no direct flights. Uh, so Ukraine kind of shut off Russia and, and moved on and looked west. We are talking to James Brooke, a distinguished journalist with an incredible career. So maybe you could take us through some of that. Well, I've been very lucky. I, uh, I studied a lot of languages starting when I left Lenox to uh, study in France for nine months, school year abroad. And then I love that so much that uh, local friends here in, in Lenox paid for me to study in Bogota, Colombia. I learned Spanish. And then... Why did local friends pay for you? I spent a semester in Bogota, Colombia. Right, and that was Bill Wild, who at that time was the owner of Highland Farm, and uh, and he had he was living in, in he's one of the part of the family. He was living in Bogota, and so I had ninety days intensive. Basically, he welcomed me at the airport, and then I never saw him again. Really? <laughs> so it was sink or swim with the Spanish, and I, I swam. They sent me up with a local family, and, and it worked out wonderfully. And I love Colombia, I love Colombians, and love South America. And then I studied uh, Portuguese in college and Russian, odd combo. Uh, the tickets were, the foreign languages were tickets to work overseas. And uh, so I had two and a half fascinating years in West Africa based in Abidjan. Um, there was not a long line of people wanting to work in Africa. They all wanted to go to Paris. And who sent you there? Uh, the New York Times. So right. I was a New York Times West Africa correspondent. How did you get a job with the New York Times? Well, I wasn't getting hired by the Berkshire Eagle, so that was disappointing. Uh, you know, I was so, work- oh, well, I'll go to the yeah. Times. Yeah, I was working in the South Berkshire Bureau, half-time, part-time, and it wasn't, I wasn't prospering. So I heard that James Reston, who was the eminent Washington columnist of that period, he, Indeed. he needed a clerk. And I applied, and he looked at my CV, and he said, you know, I've always said that Americans will do anything about Latin America but read about it. So in his little way, decided to compensate by hiring me. And that was a great year and a half. I didn't get hired, worked for the Washington Star. And then I decided to try my fame and fortune doing it as a foreign correspondent. So I bought a one-way ticket to Rio and started writing stories uh, for the Washington Post and the Miami Herald. How, how did you convince them to hire you? Well, it, being a stringer, you're never hired. You're just paid by the article. Right, and, and this makes me sound like I'm approaching middle age, but actually in some of the cases, I would actually mail the stories. They're called mailers, written on onion skin paper with black and white photos. And then I two-timed the Miami Herald and the Washington Post. I did the same story, identical story. It was a very sexy story about this guy who has murdered his wife on the beach north of Rio and and ended up being on the cover of Cosmopolitan magazine. But it, before that, it was on the cover of the Sunday Washington Post style section and the Sunday Miami Herald. And the morning after, they were really pissed. And they called up. And instead of hiring, firing me, they decided to hire me. And so I was hired to become the South America correspondent for the Miami Herald. So I understand it. I certainly know that Miami is the unofficial Latin American capital of the world. Right. Yeah, all roads from Latin America lead to Miami, and they care a lot about Latin America. It's a bilingual city by these days, and uh, and Miami Herald is a bilingual newspaper. This is the Spanish edition and the English edition. So being a bit of a schemer, I opened the Miami Herald office across the hall from the New York Times office. <laughs> Hello, here I am, and made sure they saw every single one of my stories, the good ones, and that led to the Times hiring me and sort of working my way up through their system. And they hired you because of your Latin American interest? It was rare to hire someone who spoke Portuguese and had experience, um, and, um, you know, they're looking for tw- ambitious 28-year-olds who can climb the greasy pole, which I did, 
And I kind of game the system. I had four foreign jobs with the New York Times, which is at that point was sort of a record and a lot of fun. And that's when the New York Times had money. You know, I used to joke that the back page of the Sunday magazine would pay my salary and travel expenses for the year. I mean, it was a real money-making machine. Right. And then later on, they didn't have money. Yeah, and that's when I sold my stock <laughs> at the bottom of the U. <laughs> Interesting. So tell me what working for the Times was like. Well, I would never do what I'm doing now. I would never talk to reporters or anything. I was very cautious about keeping my head low and avoiding controversies. Um, I remember... I was asked by uh, Larry King to go on, because at that point I was, I was in Denver, and, and the Jean Bernay Ramsey murder case, and they said, oh, come on, talk. And I turned them down, and, and the New York Times did not want their people out there uh, showing that they had opinions and showing that they... That has sure changed now. That's changed, maybe not for the better, but uh, there's... <laughs> uh, we were very anonymous. We had our bylines. Um, we didn't want to get into controversies. Um, the upside of that is that... I think the central rule for, to being good journalists is to be a good listener, not to do what I'm doing now, which is talking, but to listen to people like you, Alan, and to, uh, to our sources. What do they have to say? Listen to people. That's key for journalism. So there you are working for the New York Times and proceed with the story from Latin America. Well, first I did West Africa, then I did Brazil. What made you go to that? And that's so interesting looking at your background. What made you go from Latin America to West Africa? Well, I actually, within the times, I went from West Africa to uh, Latin America to Brazil. I see. And, you know, oddly in Africa, speaking French and Portuguese was very useful. And I remember I was at a overseas press club thing in New York in October, and this guy comes, Jim, I remember when you were translating for us in Angola. And I kind of raised my, <laughs> rolled my eyes because I hated translating for other people. But <laughs> he was in the LA Times. But, you know, that really opens the doors if you can speak the languages and you go to someplace like Angola or Mozambique and they speak Portuguese. And so being one of the three people inside the New York Times that was a decent reporter who spoke Portuguese, the natural next step was to send me to Brazil. Actually, I wanted to go to Argentina, but I sort of felt I'd done Brazil. But I went to um, Brazil and, and had a great time. I, I clung to that post like of clinging to a telephone pole in a hurricane. I mean, <laughs> I broke records at that time for staying in Rio for seven years. It was great, and I loved it. Went everywhere. And they never would question where I'd go, and I'd just deliver stories. And uh, I remember the foreign editor saying, Bernie Gwertzman said, you know, Jim, working with you is like getting little Christmas presents, two a week, you know, and then I'd wrap them and see what you're delivering. They would not question where I was going. They would not tell me to go anywhere because the average American does not wake up thinking, gee, what happened in Brazil yesterday? <laughs> you know, it was up to me to tell them. So who were the major capitalistic American influences in Brazil at the time? Well, Ford was there making cars, uh, and uh, there were foreign investors. Uh, you know, what's happened since I left Brazil is that the number one trading partner is no longer the U.S., it's China. So the Chinese have displaced uh, the U.S. in some degrees as the number one trading partner, maybe not investor. Brazil has diversified a lot. When I was there, they, they set up their own South America common market, Mercosul, and trading heavily with Argentina. Uh, the EU has come in strong. So that U.S.-Brazil dependency or codependency has really uh, lessened the kind of vision you may have had of the relationship from the 1960s and mm -hmm. 70s. That, that's, right. that's changed a lot. and They're much more diversified. We're talking to James Brooke, who is a foreign affairs columnist and obviously one of the people in America who most people want to talk to because of what he has been doing. So, James, take us on the trip. You're in Latin America, in Brazil. What happens next? Well, I wanted to go to Mexico, and then I was, uh, quote, demoted to Denver. <laughs> and, and that happened. You know, I think they wanted to, they want to bring guys home, men and women, to, so they don't go sort of native and Colorado, the Ameri to be the Rocky Mountain Bureau Chief of the New York Times is sort of a dream job, partly because New Yorkers see Rocky Mountains as kind of a foreign assignment. <laughs> it's, it's way out there. And I, once again, I had free play to roam around New Mexico, Montana, you know, Utah, do all these great features and not really a lot of breaking news. Uh, I had the Matthew Shepard killing. That was breaking news sure. for sure. But... Um, you know, I had a New York Times Jeep and 
almost had a New York Times ski pass. <laughs> I paid for that part. But, you know, the whole family went skiing in Vail all the time and uh, Loveland. And it was great. We all loved uh, Colorado. And I hung to that, hung on to that one for seven years. Um, but then um, they needed someone to cover Canada. And then the, the Times at that time was starting to run out of money and they got in a tax fight with the Canadians. So oddly, I stayed in Denver in my house, which was at Evergreen, and covered Canada out of Colorado. Now, of course, the Canadian press had a big ha-ha with that. And, you know, they interviewed me while I was in Aspen saying, oh, the Canada correspondent's in Aspen. Uh, but you cover Canada out of an airplane. So whether that airplane starts in Toronto or Denver, it doesn't really make a big difference. And I went to all 10 provinces and all three territories and went up to the top of the world, the top of Ellesmere Island to alert the northernmost human settlement in the world. Um, I had a great time. I went to Greenland. I, I, you know, once again, the Times wasn't asking me what you're doing. So I would just buy a ticket to Greenland and go do six stories out of Greenland about, you know, global warming was starting then and the Arctic ice was melting up in the northern part of Canada. Fascinating time time to be there. I love Canada. It's a great place. Ooh, is the Times lax in the way they were running you and everybody else? Well, they weren't counting the beans that much. They saw me as a guy who'd come up with interesting features that were readable, who would communicate something to the guy sitting in the Metro North Railroad. And uh, I wasn't given these sort of breaking news areas where you had to like, be filing all the time. And once again, that was the New York Times was had basically one deadline. I mean, it's a couple of deadlines. But after Canada, I went to Tokyo. And I, when I went to Tokyo, I was writing for the New York Times. When I left Tokyo five years later, I was writing for the International Herald Tribune based in Paris, different deadline, the New York Times and the New York Times website, which was like working for a radio station around the clock. And so it had moved from being one deadline a day to basically being three deadlines a day, which is pretty punishing for someone who's covering like, you know, the nuclear bomb crisis in North Korea or something. James how much of when you move from one place to another was your decision as opposed to the Times? Well, I was always lobbying to stay overseas, and uh, I didn't really want to go to Denver, but I fell in love with the place, and it was a just super assignment. The family loved it. Japan just came out of the blue. I was literally standing on a huge mountain of wood chips at a logging company in Quebec, and the phone rang, and it was the Rosenthal, the foreign editor, and he said, Jim, you know, we got a problem in Tokyo. They're all fighting with each other, and you get along with everybody. And uh, we'd like you to go to Japan. <laughs> Japan. <laughs> I've never set foot in Asia. You know, I, I no Japanese, no none of that, no Korean. It was Japan, Korea. So I spent five weeks doing Berlitz, Japanese, in Denver, which was sort of a joke. <laughs> but you are a languagist, aren't you? Yeah. You but know the that. problem was that I, I didn't get to do a homestay in Japan, so I didn't really get Japan underneath my belt. And then uh, the nuclear crisis blew up in Korea. So I was tag teaming with my colleague going in and out of Korea every week. So my Japanese language didn't really prosper. But Jap Japan's a fascinating place. I got a little bored, spent a lot of time going up to the Russian Far East, uh, doing stories, went down into the Pacific. I was always looking for some new frontiers and um, did stuff out of Guam and Saipan and had fun. Interesting place. We are talking to a remarkable journalist, James Brook. James or Jim, as I know you like to be called, you obviously are a guy who doesn't like to sit still in one place and to be defined by that. Am I wrong in that? Well, Alan, you, you kind of hit the nail on the head. Uh, I've visited 100 countries and f filed stories out of 80, and so people think that I'm going to get restless in Lenox. Uh, you know, I grew up in Lenox, and That's I'm— It's Lenox, Massachusetts, for those who are listening in another place. Go ahead. Yeah, I grew up in Lenox on Main Street, and I'm here because I want to be here on my own timetable and actually left Kiev three months ahead of the crowd. Uh, you have enough money. I'm sure that's what everybody listening to this radio yeah, is. You know, I, well, I bought my siblings out for a, a small house, and so we have a lovely little house. Our son is in a great little school, uh, Morris Elementary. And, um, you know, I have, you know, New York Times pension, and uh, so I'm mm. doing okay. You're old enough for pension? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Very flattering. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. Okay, so, so you have this incredible skill as a journalist, and now... Without realizing what was going to happen, Ukraine opens up and you are the man. Yeah. 
it's like the wet leaf on the shoe and trying to get rid of it. I was <laughs> <laughs> trying, trying to get beyond Ukraine. And Ukraine has come back and bit me in the backsides. I mean, Saturday, I was up with a laptop on my ironing table talking to CNN Brazil and Portuguese for an hour. Wow. <laughs> I never thought I'd be doing that. But it's fun and it's positive. It's a way I can help Ukraine and uh, help people understand what's going on there. Well, but language plays such an amazing part in your success, Jim Brooke. I mean, think about it. We just say, oh, that's it. So he learned a language, he learned some words. But in the end, we Americans don't begin to appreciate what language means, do we? Well, I, I see language in a fairly utilitarian way, like a, a carpenter has a string of tools on his belt. And the languages were my tools for opening up these societies. And the distance I could go in Brazil or Angola with Portuguese or in French-speaking West Africa with French was great. You know, it really makes a difference. And I felt that frustration in Japan where I had to work with translators. But in Russia, it really it opens doors. And Ukraine is still a bilingual country, so you can get by with Russian. Did your parents appreciate your success? <laughs> Well, my father was hid behind his New York Times, <laughs> He's sitting in the armchair, hiding behind the newspaper, not wanting to talk. So I, I think he did. And I, I think he did. And uh, my mother definitely did because she was very much a free spirit who loved to travel all over the place. And uh, so I think they did. I, I, I think they thought journalism was sort of a low rent occupation. But, you know, by the time I got to become a foreign correspondent with the New York Times, all of a sudden it, it paid off. <laughs> When you went to the butcher shop, I said, what is your son doing now? Well, he's foreign correspondent with the New York Times. Whoa. Yeah, I uh, guess. That's amazing. So what did your father do? Well, he uh, uh, he did real estate, and he was um, he was in the war. He was an ambulance driver in the war, um, American Field Service, came out, did real estate. Uh, he was not super successful. He married my mother, who had a lovely house on Main Street in Lenox, and so he kind of lived with her, obviously, and, and produced four great children. And um, it was a good marriage. You know, one wonderful thing about being back in Lenox is I run into people who out of the blue start talking about my mother. And, and that is rare in life where you can get that experience, especially when you get to sort of our age. <laughs> it doesn't happen that often. How long have they been gone? In the 80s. My mother's buried in the Church of the Hill uh, in Lenox, and my father wanted to be buried next to his family in Pennsylvania. So... Um, yeah, it's, it's been a while. And, and really, you know, when you go around the clock, it is rare to, for me to be in the Berkshires, see people I knew 50, 40 years ago, and um, and obviously the places. And uh, Alan, I think I was telling you the other day that the conservation ethic here is so strong that the the landscape has not changed. The houses are the same. And then I, I ask people, well, what about the, oh, then I, oh they're dead. <laughs> I've learned not to ask that question because the houses stay the same, but the occupants change. And that's just part of life. Well, I know it. I live in a house which was built by Judge Justin Dewey, who everything in Great Barrington is named after. And uh, it'll never be the Short Talk House. <laughs> so, you put a little plaque on the wall. Just put Alan, a plaque on Alan the wall. Lived here. <laughs> Okay, so what I, what I wanted to ask you is, you are now married to a woman who's Cambodian, is that right? Yeah, she's right here, Penn. And, and, how, did, and how did she, yes, she is. And how did you meet her, and mm -hmm. what made you get married? Well, I was for two years the editor of the Khmer Times, sort of therapy after eight years in Moscow. I like to say more winters than Napoleon. I, I was invited to uh, Cambodia to run a newspaper. That particular newspaper didn't work out, but another one was starting up, and they hired me. And met lovely Penn, and um, the rest is history. So we. So where did you meet Penn? We met. Uh, she was working as a manicurist in a um, salon, yeah. and so kind of hard to not look at her. <laughs> well, she is a lovely lady. Okay, so let me go back to where we are in terms of your development. How long were you doing newspaper work before you decided you were going to come here and still do newspaper work, but do it piecemeal? Well, hmm, probably about 40 years at least, uh, 45. Um, you know, I, I, if you look at, I spent like five years in many countries, and I'd been in Ukraine for six. And what I was doing was this Ukraine business news, which was uh, very loved. I had a huge fan group in, in uh, Kiev, and it was every weekday morning I sent out this email with 15 
news items, very factual, very Bloomberg style. It was a five-minute read or a 30-second scan, and that's where people are going. They want easy, fast information. I built up a large readership. But the emperor has no clothes. I mean, Ukraine is not a great investment story, and we're seeing that today. Uh, but we were also seeing that a little earlier, that um, partly because Russia was kind of breathing down their necks, uh, foreigners didn't really want to invest in Ukraine, especially in the eastern part. So I thought, I arrived in Ukraine thinking, oh, this is going to be like you know NAFTA and Mexico all over again. They've got a free trade pact with the EU. They've got four EU neighbors, they've got east-west rail, and, and, and they get along very well with the EU, that I just assumed that with this new free trade pact that we'd see what we saw in northern Mexico. You know, a thousand American companies moved into northern Mexico. Didn't happen. Uh, maybe 50 German car park companies moved in. But the, the Why far- is that? I think partly because you go before the board in Frankfurt or uh, New York or London or Tel Aviv or Paris – and you say Ukraine, they go, oh, isn't that country at war? Why would we invest in bricks and mortar in a country that's at war? And you got to explain to them that Ukraine is larger than France, that, you know, it, it's— um, People don't know that. It's huge. It's larger than Texas, I think. And actually, the skeptics are now being proven true because the Russians are bombing cities— in Western Ukraine. So was Russia always on people's mind when they... I think people often did. And I had a... I think it was the Italian ambassador in... uh, The Italian ambassador in Kiev told me that big Italian companies were not coming into Ukraine because they didn't want to prejudice their operations in Russia. Russia was the main stage. Russia was the big pie. And um, Ukraine was sort of a little cookie, you know. I mean, Ukraine has 40 million people, but Russia has these oil and gas billions, and a healthier internal market has been. Although here's a factoid. Until the war started, the um, per capita wage in Ukraine had gone above that of Russia. Um, So Ukraine has a lot of assets. They have a very strong IT industry. They've been actually advertising for people from other countries. Um, And, of course, agriculture, which is why the Nazis invaded, you know, 75 years ago the black soil, the black earth, and it, it's a world food power. Now that you mention it, Putin has now accused the uh, Ukrainian leadership of being Nazis. What do you make of that? Well, he's played up a lot, uh, the Soviet Union's victory in '45. He never mentions that the Lend-Lease program where the U.S. and the U.K., to great list to our lives, our merchant seamen, we sent vast quantities of tanks and trucks. So he's played up the World War to victory as their victory. Uh, obviously, Holocaust, to some degree, echoes mm-hmm. with the Russians. The odd thing is that Ukraine, once again, has moved on. They had a free election two and a half years ago with seven candidates from seven parties, and they voted in the second round 70% for the Jewish candidate. So President Zelensky is a Jewish president, a president a Jewish who is president who lost about two-thirds of his family in the Holocaust. I mean, he doesn't, you know, minimize this. And his whole family tree has been truncated by relative great-grandfathers who were murdered. And the Ukrainians were not particularly good about the Holocaust. No. Many Ukrainians collaborated with the Nazis. Many Jews were killed in Ukraine who never saw a Nazi soldier, never saw a Nazi concentration camp. But going back to the current period, uh, when he was elected, the prime minister, coincidentally, was also Jewish. So you had the only country outside of Israel that had a Jewish president and a Jewish prime minister was Ukraine, which Putin is now accusing of being run by Nazis, which just doesn't make sense. And the defense minister, by the way, is also Jewish. I'm not saying it's a Jewish plot here. But, no, but what do you make of it? <laughs> well, uh, there was a Pew Charitable Trust survey of Eastern European attitudes towards Jews and the question was kind of ridiculous for us in the Berkshires and people in New York, but how would you feel about having a Jewish neighbor? <laughs> and something like 20% of Polish people said they did not want to have a Jewish neighbor. But Ukraine was the most tolerant, it was like 6%. You know? So of the six Eastern European countries, the most laissez-faire tolerant on the religious issue was modern-day Ukraine. Uh, we all know the history. And, uh, but Putin uses this card assuming that people don't, because he controls all the media, that people don't know the reality of of Ukraine. So when you look at the country right now, what do you see? 
What I see is that once again, and we've seen this with American presidents where they're surrounded by advisors and getting bad advice. Putin has isolated himself. He hasn't physically been in Ukraine since 2004, I don't think, which is already 18 years ago. So he's out of touch. And his tight circle, for instance, to see Putin, you need to self-isolate for two weeks. He doesn't meet people. He doesn't his tight circle are also similarly post-Soviet men, Soviet men in their 60s and 70s, KGB guys, and they don't know what's going on in Ukraine. You know, surprise, surprise, eight years ago, Russia grabbed Crimea and drove tanks into Ukraine. Surprise, surprise, Ukrainians didn't like that, and that got their backs up. And so you, thanks to Putin, Ukrainian nationalism is at a high level. He's also running a country that's been fighting Russia for eight years at a low level and has 200,000 war veterans and has a ethic of resistance. There's a saying in, I think it was in Tadas Bulba, and the, you push a Ukrainian, meek and mild Ukrainian, until the point that his forehead hits the ground and then he rises up a Cossack. And the Cossacks were Ukraine. You know that. Cossacks were runaway serfs who valued their independence, their freedom. In 1920, there were the Reds and the Whites fighting each other sure. throughout the former Tsarist Empire. In Ukraine, there, were the, there was the anarchist army, <laughs> you know, the only country in the former Soviet Union that had an anarchist army. They had 100,000 men f under the black flag of anarchism. So there's a long tradition of rebellion, and uh, an armed rebellion, and and that's coming to hold. I have not heard of any Ukrainian unit surrendering. I haven't heard of any Ukrainian unit, um, you know, defecting. Um, another item is that for eight years, Ukrainians have been able to watch very closely these areas under Russian control in the southeastern part of Ukraine and Donetsk, their so-called People's Republics. And yes, eight years ago, people thought, oh, well, this is a good idea. We'll be taken over by Russia. They'll pay our pensions. We'll have a lot of money. It'll be great. Retired of Kiev, you know, all this stuff. Well, for eight years, we've seen these Russian-controlled areas are little gangster states where they actually kill each other. The, the leadership kill each other. They bomb each other. Um, total press censorship, rigged elections. And then for the people who don't get it, they're actually torture camps. They're, they're little basement, not so little, basement torture camps. Everyone knows this. So, okay, maybe Jim Brooks inventing this, but I defy you to cite anyone, any Ukrainian who's moved into these areas. People vote with their feet. And about half the population has left these areas. Half have gone to Ukraine, half have gone to Russia, but no one wants to live there. And you ask a Ukrainian, well, what you ever thought of moving to the Luhansk People's Republic? They, they just think you're, you're touched in the head. Why would anyone ever want to move there? The only reason people go there is to take their family members out. And a lot of the people stay there or elderly people who stay there because they have a house, they have an apartment, and they have nowhere to go. So they just put up with you know, living in a gangster state. Um, so Ukrainians have been offered the option. You know, it's like, do you want to live in East Germany or West Germany? Do you want to live in North Korea or South Korea? And Ukrainians have had that option for eight years. They don't want to live in the Russian-controlled sections. And you'll see these TV interviews say, we don't want to be part of Russia. It's very simple. So what's it like? I know I see interviews with people in the underground what is Kev like? Well, my neighbors are now sleeping in the subway station around the corner, Golden Gate subway station, and they're running low on food because um, there is a siege developing around Kiev, and trucks aren't getting through and people who didn't get their food in advance are facing hard times. And people are... Um, the, living in these so-called air raid shelters, which really are basically subway stations. And I remember in my building, and I don't know if people were down there, but there was this horrible space where they kept the water pump, and and I wouldn't want to spend more than about three minutes down there. But uh, people are either going down there or they're just waiting it out or they're, they're trying to get out, physically out, um, to the countryside or to Poland or somewhere. And what does the United States mean to them? Well, they're, they don't want U.S. boots on the ground. They want U.S. anti-ship, anti-drone, anti-tank, and uh, anti-aircraft missiles. And they need them fast because my fear is that Putin, his offenses have been blocked. He's surprised. Um, 
that he will resort to what he did in Chechnya and what he did in Syria, which is carpet bombing, just destroying a city in Chechnya. I've been to Grozny, the capital of Chechnya, and uh, it's all been rebuilt. Uh, but he leveled it. It looked like Stalingrad when he was through with it. And we know what the pictures look like from Aleppo, Syria. And my fear is that he'll be frustrated, so he'll take that out of his playbook and just destroy a Ukrainian city like, you know, the Nazis did with Guernica. You know, okay, you give us a lot of problems, we're just going to flatten you. We've been talking to James Brook, who is a brilliant journalist and a guy who has worked in the New York Times around the world and spent considerable amount of time in some of the very places that we are talking about. Let me me ask you this. As a foreign affairs columnist, to what degree do you have to understand what people are thinking as opposed to what you're thinking? Well, you have to... I'm aiming for an American audience, and you have to figure out that people are busy and what do they know, and and deliver the goods in a easy-to-consume manner. I'm not afraid of short sentences. Mm-hmm. <laughs> One thing I'd like to mention, I, I signed on last week as the Ukraine-Russia Fellow for the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. So that's opened up a lot of microphones to me. And I, I've talked to radio stations in Charlottesville, Kansas City, Calgary. Um, and you try to imagine the persons in their car, which you do every day, and get the message across in a pretty simple, straightforward way. And the American people, what are they thinking about Ukraine right now, do you think? Well, there's bipartisan support. Most people support. Let me stop you right there. We know that Trump is pro-Russian. Yeah. Now, I think when this began, he wasn't certainly taking part in the anti-Kremlin Russian, you know, defense of Ukraine. That seems to have changed. He seems to be reversing himself. Yeah. I think— Trump is being cautious. I think he realized he misspoke, to put it politely. Or guessed wrong. Yeah. The the dangerous one is Tucker Carlson, who's sort of a junior Trump, who's a very charismatic. He's got a gift of the gab. He's very charming. And he's siding with dictators. I don't know why. Uh, But he is siding with, with Trump on this. But Tucker Carlson is kind of like Patrick Buchanan or Sarah Palin. I mean, they... Every generation will have a pretty far-right exponent who's articulate and charismatic, and that's life. (laughs) But the bipartisan support, I think, is largely behind Ukraine and uh, getting the weaponry fast to Ukraine so they cannot be carpet-bombed and so they can live their own lives in peace. Well, Jim Brooke, does the Trump performance right now hurt his chances of re-election? Well, I personally don't think that Trump can be reelected, but— But he doesn't think that. Yeah. He keeps saying he's going to run. Yeah. All all we know for certain is he likes to be a kingmaker and sort of, you know, pick out who will run in various primaries. Um, I think that may be why he backed off, because uh, there is such a— On Ukraine. On Ukraine, yeah, because there is such a a bipartisan support for arming Ukraine and— from traditional conservatives to liberals. One interesting thing was the whole Hunter Biden thing that took place while I was there. And it was very surreal because all these people later were parading through congressional committees and there were people I knew, the U.S. ambassador, Masha, and uh, the DCM, the number two of the embassy. And, and uh, it, w- it was odd that Hunter Biden was on that board. And you know, as I said, great work if you can get it, $80,000 a month. He never physically came to Ukraine. But the fact that Trump contravened the will of the U.S. Congress and held up military aid to Ukraine to force Zelensky to open an investigation into Hunter Biden, that's illegal. I mean, you just don't do that uh, under the U.S. Constitution to use the government for private gain. So th- that was really outrageous. And we were totally mystified because we started getting these rumors that the age isn't coming through and say, like, well, what's the problem? You know, the bureaucrats, they can't fill out the papers in time. It, the, the money had been approved. We knew that. And uh, it was just actually a college classmate of mine, Jackson Deal, who broke the story for Washington Post that, that Trump was um, playing political games with this. 
There are many of us who think that Trump has been captured with quotes around it by Putin and the Russians. Seems to me there's some real proof to that. Is that legitimate? Alan, I've always suspected that. And I've thought that when the tax returns are made public, we Mm -hmm. will know. I, I saw Trump in Moscow. And once again, we don't know what is going on because there he was at the Miss World contest. And we didn't know that he was kind of peeking over the partitions, looking at the girls taking their clothes off. After the press conference, we assumed he's going to meet Putin. We didn't realize that Putin didn't want to see him, apparently. But Trump had a soft spot for Russia. His son said that he had been there maybe a dozen times trying to get this Trump Moscow Tower set up. And we we know that was very high on his priority list. Also, a lot of people bought the Trump condominiums and really helped bail them out uh, were from Russia and Kazakhstan. So they really mined that market, you know, the whole prestige and glitter of the Trump name. And Deutsche Bank, which basically was sort of a captive bank for Russia in Moscow, and I, I know people work there, my understanding is that they bailed Trump out in a very tight time in the 90s when basically uh, Wall Street refused to give him any more money. And that so, yes, I do agree that I do suspect that the Russians, there was a huge conflict of interest there. And I'm hoping that the investigation into his finances will, will bring this out. You know, who, who loaned him money and who was he paying uh, loans to? And uh, Well, as a um, seasoned journalist, certainly we have to at least have operating hypotheses, which we work on. But what do you think is going on here? I mean, Trump seems in this country to be untouchable. He's untouchable for his electorate, maybe 40%. I haven't followed all the investigations. I did hear that two of the uh, investigators, the prosecutors quit the job. Mysteriously. Yeah. It is, it's it's a massive conflict of interest. If we had a man in the White House who owned $400 million to Russian banks, you know, or Deutsche Bank, Moscow. um, So that should be investigated. We we can't have that kind of conflict of interest. The person in the White House is supposed to represent 320 million Americans. Well, you said we can't have it, but we do have it. Let's see. Hopefully it'll come out. Been waiting a long time for that, Jim Brook. So let me let me ask you this. Where do we go from here with Ukraine? First of all, your prediction. Will in fact the Russians end up running Ukraine? No, no, they won't. Really? Uh, no, no, they won't. I mean they may short term set up a puppet government somewhere, but you know, when Putin's dead, uh even if Zelensky sues for peace there will be Ukrainian army units continuing. There will be partisan warfare. And from 44 to 54, after the collapse of the East, Ukrainian partisan units continued for a decade and killed more Soviet security personnel than died in Afghanistan in the 1980s. So Mm -hmm. uh, once again, the Ukrainians are highly nationalistic. You've seen these videos of grandmothers shouting at Russian troops. And and, uh, um, the country is pretty well united against and it's it's a death sentence for anyone who wants to collaborate with him. You know, pretend he's mayor of Kiev or president of the country because he'll probably be taken out by a sniper fairly soon. So I don't see collaboration with the Russians. Um, they, sure, they're ambitious people, but if they can live behind a steel box, they're they're safe. Um, and the the partisan warfare, the the organized units will keep going. Um, so I, I don't see how, except for basically doing the Grozny thing where you bomb a a city into rubble and then you declare you've won. I mean, that could happen, but there's so many. See, there are 40 million people there. And and there are also, it's hard to gauge the impact of Russian public opinion, but the Russian public opinion is very sensitive to dead dead men coming back in bags. And uh, the losses are mounting already. And um, Probably a million Russians have relatives in Ukraine. They don't want to see them dead. or um, So I don't – there have already been 5,000 people arrested in Russia protesting the war. The war is only four days old. Uh, there are massive demonstrations throughout Europe. And these sanctions are really going to hurt, really going to hurt um, starting this week. We've already seen the ruble. I think today lost 30 percent of its value. So just to recapitulate here – You think, Jim Brook, that Putin has misassessed the situation based on some of his earlier successes? Yeah, but he, you know, people for some reason think that Putin is some sort of genius, but he failed in 2004 in Ukraine. He failed in 2014 in Ukraine, and I think he's going to fail in 2022. Uh, But this time, 
a severe failure could mean the end of his regime. I mean, if he keeps getting deeper and deeper into this and the Russian people aren't there. You know, when they lost the war against the Japanese in 1905, the Tsars almost lost power. And when they were losing in 1917, they did lose power. So it isn't good to lose lose a war for your future of your job as czar. As czar. So if we were to sort of assess where we're at right now, did Putin make a major mistake here? Yes, he did. He did. He's he's uh, he's given NATO. He's revived NATO. He's revived Ukrainian nationalism. Uh, he's uh, suffering huge economic sanctions now. He personally, some people think he's the richest man in the world. He That's personally right. can be unaffected by this, but you know there may be mobs trying to put his head on a pike, you know, outside the Kremlin walls fairly soon. So we've talked about Putin a lot. What about Biden? Has Biden misplayed this? No, I think Biden has actually done well. Biden screwed up in, in Afghanistan this summer, and that unfortunately gave the Kremlin thought they'd been given a green light. And I was in Kyiv when that happened, and the Kremlin propaganda was saying, Ukrainians, you're next. They were saying it's back in August. But since then, he's, I think, redeemed himself. He's been very proactive in outing the typical sort of Russian-Soviet tricks that actually go back to the czarist era, in an era, these false flag, where you, you invent a pretext to invade, you create some sort of protocol of Zion or some sort of weird propaganda thing. Uh, this is not new. The Russians have been doing this for a long time. And Biden exposed all this stuff continually and, and put them on the back foot. Um, and so they had to go in. Or they felt they had to go in without this propaganda advantage. And there was no illusions that this was liberating Ukraine by any means or had been invited in by Ukraine or there was a pretext to invade. All that stuff was stripped away. So, James Brook, I must say, I'm so delighted to have had a chance to talk to you because you obviously know a great deal, a great deal more than most people will ever know about Ukraine. We've been in conversation with James Brook, and we are delighted that he has been able to spend this much time with us. Thank you, James. We've so appreciated it. Thank you, Alan. It's been great. Hope to do it again. been listening to Dr. Alan Chartok, President and CEO of WAMC Northeast Public Radio and Professor Emeritus at the University at Albany. For more information on WAMC's In Conversation with Alan series or to order a physical copy, call 1-800-323-9262 or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or on the Google Play Store. ¶¶